Father, we're so thankful that we come to you by simple faith. And we realize, our Lord, that sometimes our focus on the mental powers that you have given to us causes us to miss the simple truths. And we know, Lord, that it is not because you are a simple God, because you are omniscient. Lord, we're so thankful that you have brought your word to us and given us the faith and the heart to respond and that you have drawn us into your kingdom. And we pray for those, Lord, who are locked up in their little ivory towers and who are convinced that they are more intelligent than the rest, that they might somehow see that the God who created it all is a God who accepts us, who expects us to live by faith. Faith sometimes and often in the things that are unseen, things that cannot be, quote, proven in a, in a um, obvious way. Lord, I pray that we at the same time will not be as many historically have been opposed to those things which seem to be called science or of the intellect because, Lord, you have given to us minds to understand and a desire to learn about this earth and this, and this, this solar system. So, Lord, I pray that we will allow your faith to be strong in us and all of our faculties to be used under that umbrella. Guide us in our study this morning and give us true insight and understanding in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to look at the creation of women, or woman. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. For Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. All of the animals were created male and female so that they could reproduce bisexually. Adam, on the other hand, was obviously at this point one of a kind. There was no mate for Adam. But God had very obviously created Adam with the capacity for a mate. If you and I had looked at Adam, we would have noted that he was clearly male, as we know male to be. He was physically, emotionally, and spiritually a person of capacity for a mate. This, of course, did not mean that Adam was imperfect in any way. 
It simply meant that the image of God, as it is to be, was to be expressed in mankind, was as yet incomplete in Adam alone. After God placed Adam in the garden, he, he brought the animals to him there. Now, we read in this particular verse, uh, verse 19, God makes the statement that it's not good for man to be alone. And then in verse 19, he says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. Sounds like man's already around, and then God creates the animals. Well, you know, that's obviously not what it's saying. It's simply repeating what chapter 1 has already told us as how they got here, and then saying that he brought the animals to Adam. Now, he brought the animals to Adam, I think, for three reasons, which I have listed uh, for you here on your outline, A, B, and C. First of all, I believe he brought the animals to Adam so that Adam would see, it would be a demonstration to Adam of God's, as, as you see there, of his goodness, of his power, and of his wisdom. After all, what did Adam really know about the Lord God? Adam was only hours old, so to speak. So what did he really know about the Lord God? So God is bringing them here so that he very quickly could see this, this vast array of creatures that God had made for mankind to enjoy. Now we have to, I, I really believe, that we have to see this as God creating the world for his own pleasure but he also creates the world for the pleasure of man, men and women. And he created the animals for our pleasure and, and for our good. I, I don't think he created the animals for their own good, because most of them, as we understand it anyway, do not have the kind of consciousness of self that, man, that men and women have. Secondly, we, we see, and it specifically says, that he brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. Now we always have to view passages like this from our greater knowledge of Scripture and who God is. God wasn't standing up there saying, hmm, I wonder what he's going to call this animal. God is omniscient. God knew the end from the beginning. He knew what the animals were going to be called by Adam. And therefore, the purpose was for Adam's sake that Adam might see the animals and discover what Adam was going to call the animals. Now under B, you'll notice there are two subpoints, one and two. One of the very interesting facts revealed by this episode is that God did not create a knuckle-dragging ape-man. Uh, it's sort of like the question, Adam or Aliyup? What do we have here? He did not create a creature that was going to go, uh, 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 you know, and for millennia he would slowly evolve. If, if you've ever seen the beginning of the film 2001, they go on forever, beautiful music, but they go on forever with this stupid scene about, you know, with people dressed up in ape costumes, uh, you know, going, going, running around and, and beating on each other, and suddenly somebody discovers, or, or one of these creatures discovers one day that you can kill the other guy better if you have a bone in your hand, you know, bam, bam. And they throw the bone up in the air, and this is supposed to be sort of like the beginning of the evolution of the human race. And suddenly, man's out in space. Well, it sounds to me like they were in space when they created the early part of that film. 
<laughs> now, those who accept, and, and I read in the article this morning that 40%, according to the poll, of Americans accept what we would call theistic evolution. That is the idea that everything has evolved as science has said, but it's just that the driving force behind it is God. So this is, of course, the perfect way to merge the two, it would seem. What, what is interesting is this has appealed to many. One of the greatest theologians of the, the turn of the century was a man by the name of Benjamin B. Warfield. And he kind of stood almost as a bastion alone for the uh, integrity of Scripture. But he was a believer in, in theistic evolution. And he didn't seem to, to discover that, that there was any problem with, with believing that the initial chapters of Genesis were more myth than, than history, and, and, and at the same time teaching that the Scripture is to be relied upon and that it is divinely inspired. If we accept the idea that God created some kind of a primitive creature who evolved through pro-council and, and then the, the, you know, the Australopithecine and Homo erectus and then Homo, you know, all the way up to Homo sapiens sapien, huh? wise, wise man that we're supposed to be, to accept that we have to reject the historicity of at least the first four chapters of the book of Genesis, at least that much. We have to say that that is not history, that that is a nice story, it's, it's a legend, it's a myth, and what it does is it teaches moral truths, but it doesn't teach historical truth. Now, to me, there's one big problem with that. Because if I say, because of certain empirical evidence that seems to be around, that this part of Scripture is, is not historical but is mythological, who's to say I can't say that about any passage I don't like in all of Scripture? I can say Jesus was a legend. I, I can say that, you know, Isaiah and Ezekiel were on hashish when they had their visions. I can say anything. And so that makes me the one who determines what is God's word and what is not. And that's one of the big problems with modern liberal theologians. They choose what is God's word and, and others do not. There were early, well, there was an early theologian by the name of Martian, M-A-R-C-I-O-N, who had his own idea of, of who Jesus was and, and what was true scripture. And what he did was throughout the whole Old Testament, because it was too Jewish, and the New Testament, he chopped out everything that seemed to have any Hebrew or Jewish implications, and he only went with what was Greek and Roman. So Paul was pretty acceptable, but he, he threw out almost everything else. Luke was the only gospel he would accept, and then he cut out certain parts. I mean, he literally, he had a Bible with pages cut out, you might say. What, what does that make this man? That makes this man in the place of God. He becomes his own God in determining what is truth and what is not. I think for, and this is a little bit beside the point maybe, but to me, this book is not a human invention. Even though we can say that uh, Moses wrote the, the Pentateuch and, and that was 1400 B.C. or so, and, and that we can see when the other parts of the Scripture were, were brought in and, and then the canon was basically established for the Old Testament sometime before Christ, and then the New Testament, we know, uh, for example, that in the first century there were only certain writings around that some of the Pauline letters, well, all of the Pauline letters and some of the Gospels were in circulation by the end of the first century. 
And we know that uh, by the second century, a sort of a canon was forming in the minds of at least some. And as you go through the early church historians, you discover that virtually all of the Old Test New Testament, I'm sorry, is quoted by one or more of the early church fathers by the end of the second century, indicating a belief that it was divinely inspired. And, and we know, for example, that the final canon of the New Testament wasn't accepted by the church to the late fourth century. What does that mean? Does that mean that the church invented the Bible or the, or the Word of God? Does that mean that it was up to fallible man to choose what is Scripture and what is not? That God, in his, in his great power, wasn't able to guide the creation of the canon? The God who created the universe can't make sure that the Scripture that you and I possess today is the Word of God? Does it mean that we, in the 20th century, with our supposed brilliance, can better choose than those who lived a whole lot closer to the events, what is truth and what is not. I think it's arrogant to feel that way. And I think it's very important for us to believe that this is the Word of God, and He has delivered it to us. Not, he didn't drop it out of the sky. I, I realize some people have felt in the past that almost as if the King James Version dropped out of the sky as you know, the Word of God. But... I do believe that we have to accept the scripture that we have in our hands as the infallible word of God to us. Not containing the word, but being the word in its entirety. And if we don't accept that, then I don't really feel that we have much of a foundation to stand upon, and I think we can then choose our own way. And when we do so, I think we miss the mark that God has set. Scripture says the just shall live by faith. Not foolishness, not just uh, some kind of a wild-eyed hope, but faith built on what we know to be the Word of God. And what I have found myself, and I trust you have too, is that when I study the Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, I find there is an integrity there that tells me that this is God's Word. And as we understand it and as we read it, anything that is not of God begins to be red-flagged because of our knowledge of what's in this book. If we know the book well, we cannot be led down the path of heresy because the flags will fly, the buzzers will sound, we'll say, this doesn't square with the word as we know it. So I don't believe that we can, it, for, the, for the first moment even, consider these first four chapters to be myth. I believe we have to accept them as history because God was there and we weren't. And neither were the critics. It's just quite clear, I think, from this passage that the very first human being, Adam, was created with a power of intelligent speech and of analysis. He was able to look at an animal and quickly put it into his computer what this animal was like and come up with a name. Can you imagine? I don't know how many animals God brought before, God, uh, before Adam. But, you know, he couldn't sit there and hem and haw and walk around the animal and have it parade this way and parade that way and climb up a tree and look at it and lay on the ground and look at it and, and six hours later come up with a name. You know, he had to look, shh, shh, lion, shh, shh, tiger, shh, you know, there are a lot of animals around. And it seems to imply that he did this, I mean, it, the context is the sixth creative day. This is all happening before the seventh day when God rested. I don't think there's any problem with that, even though there are some who would have problems with that. 
I think he named the animals according to characteristics which they reflected to him. Think of the intellectual and ling linguistic implications of that. He was a newborn babe, so to speak. Yet God must have instilled within that computer in his head a tremendous uh, bank of knowledge of some sort that he was able. I mean, he didn't just call them, mm, uh, eh, you know. Uh, he gave them names that could be reproduced to another person, to Eve, for example. Now, the latter part of verse 19 states that whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. God affirmed that. What Adam chose to be the name was the name that God affirmed would be that animal's name. Why? Well, because Adam was perfect. And his choice was right. He couldn't error in naming the animal. Now, you and I have no idea whether any of the present names of the animals uh, reflect the original names at all. We have no idea what, quote, language stock Adam had in the beginning, whether it was ancestral to ancient Sumerian or, or what it was. We have no idea, no way of knowing. As we're going to see a little bit later on, uh, all mankind was still of one language all the way up till the time of the Tower of Babel, which probably was you know, several thousand years after the creation of Adam. That doesn't mean there weren't some dialects around probably, or at least some accents. Some probably spoke southern version of Adamese. Others spoke a New England version, so to speak, of Adamese, whatever. The critical point here, I think, is to realize that Adam had fantastic mental powers. Adam and Eve, before their disobedience and fall, I believe possessed far greater intelligence, perception, and understanding than any man or woman has had since that time. Human mental capacities have not evolved. It's kind of interesting that they will actually say that, for example, Neanderthal had a greater cranial capacity than most Homo sapiens. And, of course, they try to relate cranial capacity to intelligence. And there are those who argue that, obviously, what used to be called Pithecanthropus erectus was uh, less intelligent because it had smaller cranial capacity, and Australopithecus, even before that, had less intellectual capacity because his cranial capacity was even smaller. But what's also interesting is they have discovered today amongst the human race cranial capacities that are of the same size as Australopithecus and Pithecanthropus, and yet they are perfectly normal human beings. And they have found some people with heads with a cranial capacity greater than that of Neanderthal, and they are dimwits. So how big your head is doesn't necessarily have anything to do, I mean, within reason, of course, obviously a pinhead to... But within a certain framework, there seems to be no relationship to actual intelligence. So the human intellect has not evolved. Man's ability as a thinking creature has not evolved from the beginning till now. In fact, I believe it has devolved. I think there's plenty of evidence for that. Disease. Cosmic radiation, we're talking about the ozone layer all the time. 
ozone layer or no ozone layer, there's still stuff coming in from outer space that is coming in there and, and disassociating our uh, bases on the, on the, you know, the Crick-Watson little uh, spiral, you know, the DNA thing, and causing, you know, detrimental mutations. And of course, at the same time, there is what is known as entropy, which is related to the second law of thermodynamics, and that is that within a closed system, you have a constantly decreasing amount of total energy. And if you have a constantly decreasing amount, sounds like we have lots of energy in here. <laughs> but if you have a, 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 an ever-decreasing amount of energy available, you can't have something rising to higher energy levels other than maybe at a certain spot for a given moment. But generally, the system is running down, and that's what Scripture says. It says the universe is waxing old like a garment. It's decaying, it's running down like a clock that got wound up at the beginning and slowly the spring is expanding and the clock is running down. And that's what's happening. So you can't have some, some creature, some primitive primate evolving into an Einstein under those conditions. It just can't happen. It's impossible. So what we have instead is these factors, disease, cosmic radiation, entropy, and all of the rest of it, producing a, steadily, a steady degradation and dulling of mankind's mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual capacities over the millennia. And so some might say, but aren't we flying in space? Aren't, don't we have electricity? Don't we have all these things? Yeah. Why? Is it because we individually are more brilliant? Or is it possibly the fact that you have so many, you have such a mass of brains today? 5.4 billion human beings walking the surface of this planet today. If, if you think back, in the time of Christ, the population of the world was estimated to be smaller than that of the U.S. today. So obviously, you have far less brain power working, plus so many other factors we could talk about, such as economic opportunity to use your brain for something besides digging in the ground, or chopping down trees, or, or trying to live in a relatively primitive way. In fact, the whole idea of the rise of civilization uh, comes out of the production of agricultural surplus. Somebody was able to grow more crop than they and their family could consume. Therefore, they had something to market to someone else who could then live upon somebody else's labor and use his labor for some other thing. And of course, becoming priests was one way to use their effort. And the priests were the great intellects of the past. They studied the skies, and they're the ones who devised early forms of architecture and built the great pyramids and the temples and so forth. So it's not that we have evolved to a higher level of intellect. There just happen to be a whole lot more brains working today, and that's why we have the advancement we have. I believe, personally, that when Adam died, in spite of all of the uh, degradation that had already occurred, that he had an intellectual capacity that would make Einstein look like a chimpanzee in comparison. Modern psychologists, at least some of them, will tell us, I don't know how they measure this, but that many of us only use 10% of our brain capacity. Some a little less, some a little more. 
But what about Adam? And what about Eve? I believe they function at 100% or nearly of, of a far greater capacity. And had Adam and Eve continued in the garden without sin, what could they have devised? <laughs> the world would have passed this level eons ago, this, this technological level, I believe. The third C under number one tells us that God also brought the animals partly so that it would be revealed to Adam that he needed a mate, that he was mateless. Now in the latter part of verse 20, we're told that there was not found a helper suitable for Adam. This is recorded from the human point of view. God didn't look down and say, oh my goodness, I forgot something. Adam doesn't have a mate, you know. God knew exactly what his plan was, and from the human point of view, Adam didn't have a mate. God knew exactly what he was going to do. He simply had not revealed to Adam yet how the fullness of his image was going to be reflected in humanity. And so he parades the animals before Adam, and Adam notes, hmm, a male and a female, a male and a female, a male and a female, male no female. You know. it, I don't think it took long for Adam realized that, um, first of all, he alone was created in the image of God and there wasn't a single animal out there that could serve as a mate for him in any sense of the word. I realize there are some of those who, because the serpent spoke in, the, in Eden, think that maybe other animals spoke. There's no scripture to support that idea. At all. I think the animals were uh, capable of speech at that time any more than they are now. So Adam found no, no one, nothing out there that could be a helper to him. And it created a desire and an appreciation how great it would be if there was a counterpart for me. Someone who could work alongside me. Well, Number two, Adam, God, God said, it is not good for Adam to be alone. And many have made a point of the fact that this is the first time in the book of Genesis that God says it's not good. Everything's been good or very good, but now God says it's not good. Now, he's not saying when he says it's not good that it's imperfect or that there's something rotten here. He's simply saying it is not complete. All that I have intended is not finished yet. And of course, that it seems to imply, I think very directly, we have not yet come to the seventh day, where God rested from all of his work. Adam was really not alone in the very general sense. He had lots of animals that he could fellowship with, but and, uh, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I know that there are people that somehow have some kind of fellowship with an animal, with their dog or their cat or their bird or whatever they might have. But I think even that person would have to admit that the fellowship with that animal is not like fellowship with, a, with another human being. Uh, it's true, I, I understand a lot of people like certain kinds of animals because they give love with no demands. Whatever kind of love that is. But there was 
and aloneness that Adam had. Now, he had God to fellowship with, too, but as people have said, God has no skin. You, know, you can't hug him. Not, not at least in the physical sense of the term. So it was an aloneness that existed only in the sense that Adam was not yet complete. Now, this tells us something about God that I think is so important. It demonstrates that God alone really understands our deepest needs. Only, I mean, Adam didn't know. It was God who brought it to his attention. God knows <coughs> excuse me, what our needs really are. And on top of that, it indicates God cares what they are. And God is willing to do something about it because God wants good in your life and in my life. We noted this verse before, and we won't turn to it, but a verse that constantly keeps coming to my mind, it seems like much of the time, is James 1.17, where it says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. Uh, the immutable God. Elsewhere it says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. This God who knew Adam's need in the garden and fulfilled it out of his goodness knows your need and my need and seeks to fulfill it out of his goodness also. The term good, as it's found in the book of Genesis, is the Hebrew T-O-B, Tob. And it does not refer to a fleeting pleasure, you know, a thrill for the moment. It refers to that essential, enduring good that produces a deep down joy, a contentment, a sense that even though things may be going seemingly poorly at the time and the tempest may be around us, that we have our feet on the rock. We're like the wise man who built his house upon the rock, and when the storms came, the house did not fall because it was built on the rock. And that gives the deep down good that God's talking about here. Many people, of course, interpret good as that momentary thrill, but it's gone. And often it leaves that kind of saccharine taste in your mouth. Now going back to the latter part of verse 18, where after he says it is not good for man to be alone, it says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam. Now the terms that are critical in this particular phrase are the terms helper and suitable for. Generally speaking, from the human perspective, the place, the role of woman has been seriously distorted in many times and in many places. The term helper here is a word that shows up several times in Scripture, and generally speaking, it's used of God. You've heard of the term Ebenezer. Well, Ezer is the word here. Eben, of course, means rock or stone. Uh, the stone of help, our Ebenezer. But the term Ezer is the one used here for the woman. She was to be his Ezer, his help, his helper. It, was, it is not a demeaning term. It doesn't imply something that's nice, but not really essential. That's not what it means at all. Rather, it refers to something that is vital, absolutely essential, without which human life is grossly diminished. 
Now, as I said, it's been used primarily for God, and I have a couple of examples listed on the outline there for you. We can look at just for a second. Psalm 70 is one example of the use of the same term that's applied to the woman, applied to God. Psalm 70, verse 5. But I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. Thou art my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Can we think of that as a demeaning term? Well, it's nice, but not necessary. Huh, hardly. He is our help, our deliverer. Absolutely essential. That, that's, that's a connotation that goes with the term as it's used in Scripture. Psalm 20, 121 is, is a more familiar passage even. First couple of verses. I will lift up my eyes unto the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Is that non-essential? Is, is, is that an expendable form of help? No. It's absolutely critical. Without the Lord's help, we are lost. So think of that connotation as we think of the creation of woman. Now, obviously, woman is not God. But nevertheless, we need to think of the connotation in that sense rather than in a demeaning sense of the word. The term helper seems to refer primarily to the emotional, social fulfillment that would come, as well as, of course, the reproduction of mankind. It's kind of interesting. Uh, the noted German commentator, Delich, writes that the woman was to help till and keep the garden. I, I think, though, although that certainly is true, it's very doubtful that that was the primary function for woman as a helper to man. It, her primary function was not to assist Adam in doing his job in, quote, bringing home the bacon. That was not to be her primary purpose in being a helper. We, we see a little bit more about what it means as we look at the other two terms there, suitable for. Now, that can be interpreted as in the eyes of opposite to, or more specifically in this context, corresponding to, a helper corresponding to Adam. Now implied in this term are at least two ideas, which I have listed there. First of all, she was of the same nature and character as Adam. We must not think that because the woman was created a few hours later, that in any way she was less fully human than Adam. She was all that Adam was in the creation of God. And secondly, you all have, as I have, put together a jigsaw puzzle at some time. And you know that the single piece doesn't mean much until the other piece is fitted to it. And as the other piece is fitted to it, we see the picture we begin to understand what really is meant by it all. And so it is that Eve was the completion of the picture. And this is directly stated, well, implied at least, in, back in the 27th verse of the previous chapter. 
And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female. Created he, he created them. So that verse is summing up what we're reading in detail here. That verse is simply saying that Adam wasn't created and then eons later, as an afterthought, God created Eve. No. There was a little time space in between the two, but in God's mind it was a single creative act. The full image of God in mankind was only seen after Eve joined Adam. Then the whole image of God our father-mother God, if you will, was seen in the two, particularly as they became one in union. Together they produced a wholeness, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, in every area of human capacity, this wholeness was created by the creation of woman. You've all heard the arguments put forth by some of the uh, more radical women's liberation people that the only difference between a man and a woman is, is biological and then what women are trained to be and what men are trained to be as children. If you give men dolls and women trucks, then you know the roles can be reversed. And others will say, that's a bunch of hogwash. Because if you study... Of a, a, a man and a woman, you discover that from the smallest cell in their bodies, they are different. It's not just an obvious outer biological difference and otherwise they're all the same. They're, a man and a woman is different from the very tiniest cell in, in every part of the body uh, to the entire being. We are simply different, and it's not just how we were raised. Because you raise a man to be a woman, you have a very confused individual and vice versa. You do not reverse the roles and make them normal, happy, healthy people when that happens. Now why? Why did God do this? Simply because he chose to. Now I'm not saying it's arbitrary. I think there's something in the very nature of God himself that's expressed this way. And so God created his image by doing, by this particular manner. Now, St. Augustine, the ancient 5th century, I guess that's ancient, Christian theologian and historian, believed that the primary way by which Eve became a helper was in the task of bringing forth children. Well, there's no doubt about the fact that that's absolutely essential. There wouldn't have been any more people unless God had you know, created them out of the dust too if Eve hadn't been created. And it is absolutely critical for the existence of the human race and for the ongoing of life as we know it. But certainly, although that's a key aspect, it is definitely not the only aspect in which woman became a helper to man. Now in verse 21, we see that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and it says, and he slept. Huh, you can bet he slept. And then God took bone and flesh from his side, and it says that he fashioned 
The Hebrew word is built. A woman. Now we have to understand the word built metaphorically. God didn't just take this and stack this on this and push this over here. <laughs> Eve was just as miraculously created as was Adam. There's no less miracle in creating a woman from just a glob of bone and flesh than there was in creating man out of the dirt of the ground. None of us could do it. Only God could do it. God is the master builder. I looked up a verse just to, to illustrate that. You don't have to turn to it. I'll just read it. Amos 9.6 The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens has founded his vaulted dome over the earth, the great sky, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He is the great builder, the master builder, and the master builder has created a woman, fashioned her from the flesh and bone of the man. Now, it's kind of interesting that there's been a lot of argument about the rib. And part of that is because the only place that the word, which is normally translated side, is translated rib, is in these two verses in Genesis. The only place they translate it rib, otherwise it's always translated side. But you'll notice there's something in the verse which seems to indicate that that's a correct translation. In verse 21 it says, and then he took one of his tzislah and closed up the flesh in that place. Now, I don't know how many that we have that you can say he takes one of and leaves others. You know, if he were to take a femur, uh, you're in trouble, you know, uh, your kneecap or whatever. Obviously, it, it, the implication is that rib is a correct translation here. It doesn't matter, but it seems to be a correct translation. That bone and flesh were both taken is implied by Adam's response when he says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. After this divine surgery, wouldn't we wish that was the way all surgery was performed, right? God does the job and it's all over with. God awakened Adam. He said, I've got a surprise for you, Adam. It says he brought the woman to him, presented his handiwork to Adam. This must have been the most electrifying meeting of all history. Can you imagine it? I don't think we can. Because every one of us has been born within some kind of a social environment, human social environment. And here was this man, although he hadn't been on earth very long, nevertheless he knew he was alone. And for the first time he witnesses, and of course she in turn witnesses him, what God has wrought. And of course they were absolutely perfect in every sense of the term. Most of you at some time or another have heard Ken Poor, <laughs> who gives a very humorous uh, approach to this whole thing. And he says that the real reason she's called woman was that Adam's initial response was, wow, man, and therefore, woman. He does it a lot better, of course. The term is isha, which Matthew Henry translates as she-man, 
And that's really based on what Luther translated it, which is very similar as female man. And of course, there's not anything wrong with that. And we, we do generically use the term mankind. I hope none of us are troubled by that. It isn't intended to be sexist in any way. Now, remember, these are extremely intelligent beings. And God was there. And I'm sure God, Adam could have said, God, what you have done, what does this mean? And God would have explained. With their intelligence, had God there to answer any questions? They quickly grasped the basic meaning of this wonderful relationship that was there before them. Now, why didn't God create Eve from the dust of the ground just as he did Adam? Why did he take bone and flesh from Adam to make Eve? Well, I think the answer is at least implied in verses 23 and 24. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of the man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one. The key concept here is unity. Adam and Eve were literally of one flesh. She was made out of his body. This gave a reality of the unity in their marriage. I mean, they were not just unified in some kind of a concept, but in reality, physical reality. And they were, of course, to serve God, therefore, in the unity of mind and of spirit, as well as in body. Now, the, 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 the uh, creation of Eve out of man, out of Adam, was actually the reverse of the way it was to be for the rest of all history. And you know it well, but let's just look for a moment at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A couple of verses there that uh, make this point. 1 Corinthians 11, 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Now, obviously, most people would say, you're crazy. I've never seen a man give birth to a woman. But, of course, the reference is back to the beginning. In verse 12, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has birth through the woman. And all things originate in God. And, and you think about that for a minute. It really ties it all together. God is the author of it all. He brought the man and the woman to be one in him. And that's exactly what he intended marriage to be. This unique creation emphasized the unity, the complete unity that was to exist in marriage. I really feel sorry for those people who come to marriage with each one with a contract. You sign this contract, I'll sign that contract, and I'll do this and you'll do that. I mean, it may be great for the courts when you're ready for divorce, but it has nothing to do with, God, with what God created the man and the woman to be in marriage. Marriage was never intended to be a 50-50 deal. It was meant to be a 100%, 100% deal. I give my all, she gives her all, and together we become one. 
One in heart, one in body, one in emotion, one in spirit. That's one of the reasons why, of course, Paul and Christ himself makes it very clear that for the believer to marry the unbeliever is absolutely re out of harmony with everything that God has ordained. Because if an unbeliever marries a believer, there is no unity to begin with. There can't be unity. It's like taking an apple and an orange together. Doesn't work. When we follow God's patterns and God's instructions, marriage is a great blessing. But when we don't, we know what happens, don't we? It can become one of the greatest curses that ever came upon a man or a woman. And I've heard the tales, as you have heard the tales, and possibly some of you even lived through it, how hellish life can be simply by being married to the wrong person. That is, to, the, to a person that has not chosen to be your mate, in, one in the flesh, or you with that individual. And this, of course, is what we're seeing so prevalent in the United States today. It's growing, and unfortunately, it's infiltrating the church. It's absolutely heathenish. Well, I think I'll have to stop there, and we'll have to pick it up in January. There's some really important points that need to be made here, which are given there under number five, at least in summary. And I don't want to rush through them. And then, of course, the last point also. So we'll, we'll pick it up there in January.